Warmer, sunnier days are finally arriving. As outside is calling, Factor is here to make sure that however busy you get, your meals are taken care of, giving you all the energy and time to enjoy that weather. Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So, no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. Treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and, oh yes, blackened salmon. Don't mind if I do. Make today the day you kickstart a new healthy routine and give yourself time to focus on what makes you happy. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash danjones50 and use code danjones50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code danjones50 at factormeals.com slash danjones50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Before we start, just a quick warning that this episode contains descriptions of violence or sexual content that may not be suitable for all listeners. <laughs> Outside the castle of Martell, a group of mourners walk beside the body of their lord. The corpse has been embalmed and anointed with holy oil, and it's wrapped in a shroud. The smell of perfumes and herbs masks the stench of decomposing flesh. Several days have passed since the death, yet the mourner's grief is still terribly raw, and the sound they're making is dreadful. They're lamenting and wailing, tears rolling down their cheeks as they ask God why he has punished them. Why has he taken this great man? One onlooker writes that if you could hear them, you'd think they were quite out of their minds. Perhaps they are, because the guy they're weeping for is, of course, Henry the Young King. As we heard last time, he died of dysentery in June 1183, while waging war on his father, Henry II, and his brother, Richard the Lionheart. That was a war which the Young King provoked, and which he proved unable to stop once it ran out of control. Like almost everything he tried in his short life, it failed and brought nothing but heartache and strife to the Plantagenet family. And not just his family. One of the mourners is Henry the Young King's friend, mentor and tournament teammate, William Marshall. Marshall is worried about what he's got to do next. On the Young King's deathbed, he made some pretty bold promises about how he'd make amends for young Henry's wayward life. First up, describing to the young king's father what happened during his son's dying moments, which is scary. Old Henry is a loose cannon at the best of times. and Right now, he's having to clean up a rebellion on top of dealing with the news that his eldest son has died. But Marshall prides himself are never backing down from a challenge. Marshall's epic verse biography, commissioned shortly after his own death and full of his personal insights, tells us what goes down. Marshall finds his way to Old Henry's war camp and lays the news out straight. Old Henry is as still as a statue. He doesn't weep or moan or tug at his hair. Instead, 
The king was of such a disposition that nobody could perceive for a moment any change to his countenance. Marshall tells old Henry how sick young Henry had been, what agonies he suffered, and how the young king had been theatrically yanked around his bedroom with a hair shirt on and a noose around his neck, while he endured with fortitude the intense pain and great discomfort. Old Henry listens in silence, then he simply replies, May God now grant his salvation. Awkward. There's a beat until Marshall breaks the silence. What shall I do now, sire? he asks. That's a pretty dangerous question to ask Henry. The answer might be, get lost and never darken my court again, or it might be, go back to Martel and kill every single person who supported my son in rebellion. But luckily for Marshall, old Henry gives him a peach of a job. He appoints Marshall to lead the convoy escorting young Henry's corpse to Rouen more than 300 miles away. He sorts out some financial trouble Marshall is having, and he later turns a blind eye to the fact that, while Marshall is on his way to Rouen, he stops to fight in a quick tournament. I mean, it's what the young king would have wanted, but still. This generous treatment is a sign of how much respect Marshall commands throughout the Plantagenet world. But that's not all. Henry has also learned that Marshall made a solemn vow to the young king as he lay dying, a vow that people in the 12th century take very seriously. When he was trying to wriggle out of the war he was losing, young Henry had taken his crusader vows. He'd promised to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and help defend it from the infidel. In his final hours, he'd given Marshall his cloak, stitched with a cross, to signify those vows. He'd asked his friend to take it all the way to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, built around Jesus Christ's empty tomb, and beg the Lord's forgiveness for his sins. Marshall had agreed, so as soon as the young king is buried in Rouen, Marshall returns to old Henry and asks his permission to depart to Jerusalem. Even the cynical king understands the importance of this deathbed promise, so he gives Marshall his blessing. He hands over a huge pile of cash for the journey, and he tells the brave knight to hurry back, because there'll be a job waiting for him at the royal court when he does. For Marshall, this is a result, and it's the start of a fascinating and mysterious chapter in his epic career. A story which had begun 30 years earlier, when he was only about five years old. A tiny child sitting in the bucket of a siege catapult, with an army threatening to splat him into human soup. I'm Dan Jones, and from something else in Sony Music Entertainment, this is History, a dynasty to die for. Episode 17, The Knight's Tale. Now that the young king's second rebellion has ended rather terminally, in this episode we're spending some time with another key player in the Plantagenet story. William Marshall is very much worth getting to know. 
He's what you might think of as a celeb of the era, and his legendary escapades shape the world around him. He also manages to serve multiple lords in this warring family without losing his head. Kind of impressive in its own right. So, let's begin with his rather unconventional start. If you've been listening to this series with the rapt attention I demand, you'll have noticed that medieval parenting wasn't quite up to our modern ideal. But even by their standards, when William Marshall was a kid, he had a hairy time. Marshall was born during the Anarchy. That was the Civil War which tore England apart in the 1140s and 50s. If you think back to episode 3, this was when old Henry's mum, Matilda, and her cousin, King Stephen, were battling it out for the crown. The barons and knights picked sides, and William Marshall's dad, John Marshall, lined up behind Matilda. Then, in 1152, when William was about five, Stephen and his troops were besieging one of the Marshall family's castles. It was a protracted affair, and during a truce designed to negotiate the surrender of the castle, John handed his own son, young William, over to the king's army as a hostage. This would supposedly guarantee that he, John, would behave. Unfortunately, John didn't behave at all. Having indicated that he was ready to give the castle up, he then changed his mind and barred the gates again. Legally, this meant hostages could be executed, which John must have known. Thanks, Dad. Stephen flew into a temper and sent little William to be hanged. But... As the kid was being bundled off to the gallows, not realising what was going on, he was so sweet and funny that Stephen had a change of heart. The next day, Stephen resolved to toughen up. A king at war wasn't supposed to be so easily swayed by a mere cute child. So he gave his men permission to put little William into their siege catapult and sling him into the castle walls. He'd be squished like an adorable little watermelon. But again, William didn't really get it. He thought the catapult was a swing and started having a great time playing in it. So again, the soft-hearted Stephen changed his mind. I accept that not catapulting a five-year-old into a wall is a pretty low bar for being a nice guy, but fair play to Stephen. There were plenty of people around at the time who would have gone through with it. William's own dad being one of them. When Stephen's men yelled to John that his son was going to die, he just laughed and dared them to get on with it. He said William wasn't his eldest son, and he had the anvils and hammers to make more. That's not rhyming slang, but I think you get what he meant. Anyway, even at five years old, it seems William Marshall was a survivor. Eventually, Stephen gave up the siege and kept William at court as a sort of companion rather than a hostage. When the Plantagenets came to power in 1154, William was sent home. I imagine father-son relations were more than a little frosty. Then, when William was in his teens, he went to train as a knight in Normandy. At that age, he was, frankly, a lazy little so-and-so 
He was given the nickname The Glutton because when he wasn't asleep, he was usually eating. But people could see that he was talented. And by the time he was 20, he'd woken up and learned how to ride and fight and live on his wits. He was a skilled, if hot-headed, young knight. He threw himself into competing in tournaments, and by 1170, when he was in his mid-twenties, he'd made such a name for himself that he caught the attention of Eleanor of Aquitaine. She appointed him as personal tutor-in-arms to young Henry. So it was William Marshall who taught Henry how to be a knight and got him hooked on the tournament circuit. Marshall stayed loyal to the young king during the War Without Love and he got him out of countless scrapes during their time together. They fell out around 1182 when some gossips in the young king's circle managed to convince him that Marshall was having an affair with his wife, Queen Margaret. Most historians today think that almost certainly wasn't true, but at the time it caused a rift between them. That's why, when the fateful Brothers' War broke out in Aquitaine in 1183, Marshall wasn't by the young king's side. So that's the story of Marshall's life up to where we started this episode. When the young king was dying, Marshall decided to let bygones be bygones and race to be with his friend before the end. There, the young king asked Marshall to fulfil his vow to go to Jerusalem and do a bit of soul laundering for him at Christ's tomb. And that's where we're going to try and follow him next. When Henry III chose his royal advisers, he ended up with some very untrustworthy power grabbers, which led to poor management decisions, rebellions, and at least one person in prison. Why didn't he use Indeed? Well, Indeed wasn't around back then, but it is today. Indeed is the ultimate hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and matching technology that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. When I was hiring, I didn't use Indeed either and the process was very slow and stressful, so I wish I had. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Dynasty. Indeed.com slash Dynasty. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's full of people celebrating their successes, but if the Plantagenets have taught us anything, it's that failing is much more interesting. So that's why I'm certain you're going to love the podcast How to Fail. The very brilliant Elizabeth Day invites guests on to talk about three of their biggest failures and what they've taught them about life. It's a great way to hear a new side to people you may think you know. Guests include Bernie Sanders, Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Stanley Tucci. Give it a try. Find How to Fail wherever you get your podcasts. William Marshall's biography runs to around 19,000-odd lines, written in old French rhyming couplets by a poet called Johannes. His poem is one of the best sources we have for any character from the 12th century. It's brimming with life and wild anecdotes. 
and it does a skillful PR job for Marshall. It presents him just how he wanted to be remembered. Loyal, steadfast and always up for a fight. The greatest knight who ever lived. Yet, intriguingly, there's a black spot in the middle of it, exactly when he decides to leave the Plantagenet world of England and France and go to Jerusalem to take the young king's cloak to Christ's tomb. The biographer is weirdly coy about this time. He tells us that Marshall goes to the Holy Land and stays there for two years. While he's there, he proves himself generous and brave, becoming a legend in his own lifetime. Apparently, all sorts of important people, including King Guy of Jerusalem, are upset when he says he's going home in late 1185. But then the biographer says he can't go into any more detail. Because I was not there and didn't witness them, nor can I find anyone who can tell me the half of them. All of which is very strange. Did Marshall get up to no good out there? Did he do the medieval equivalent of going to Vegas and coming back married to a table dancer and with a new tattoo? Did he see things he couldn't bear to remember? We can't tell, and Marshall clearly wouldn't tell. But what we can do is sketch out what his time there might have looked like, and maybe speculate about why he might have left under a cloud. It's worth our time, because the Holy Land is going to loom ever larger in our story as we go on, and because what's medieval history without a bit of speculation? The first thing to get straight is why Marshall is heading to Jerusalem. In 1095-99, the vast armies of the First Crusade had marched thousands of kilometres from France and Italy all the way down to Palestine, where they besieged and captured Jerusalem, with terrible bloodshed. There's plenty to say about this, but we'll have to save it for the next subscriber episode. That First Crusade had established a clutch of tiny, fragile crusader states in the east. The most prestigious being the Kingdom of Jerusalem. Here, a Christian king or queen rules, supported by knights and merchants who live there permanently. They consider themselves the guardians of Christ's tomb, in the magnificent Church of the Holy Sepulchre. But they're always under attack from their powerful Muslim neighbours, who are trying to reclaim these sacred lands. The only way the isolated Christian states can survive is with constant support from Western Europe. That's where knights like Marshall come in. To get to Jerusalem from France, he probably picks up a ship somewhere in Italy. Island hops through the Mediterranean via Greece, Turkey and Cyprus, then gets off at Jaffa, that's in modern-day Tel Aviv. From there it's a slightly sketchy ride over the Judean hills to Jerusalem itself. The whole journey takes months and it's dangerous. People are always getting held up by pirates at sea or murdered by brigands on land. But Marshall survives. He gets to Jerusalem in early 1184 and presumably goes straight to Christ's tomb to fulfil his promise to the young king. But he soon realises the city is in terrible political turmoil and he feels an obligation to stick around and help. Why is it in turmoil? 
Well, the king, Baldwin IV, is in a very bad way. Baldwin, who just happens to be our Henry's cousin, has got leprosy. Though he's only in his mid-twenties, he's on death's door, blind and in constant agony. This is the worst possible time for a king of Jerusalem to be ill, because on the rise in the Muslim world is a respected and skilled general called Saladin. He's amassing unrivaled power in Egypt and Syria, which means he surrounds the kingdom of Jerusalem. Poor old Baldwin is doing his best to keep Saladin at bay, but it's a losing game. He wants to abdicate and hand over the throne to his sister, Sibylla, and her second husband, Guy. The trouble is, Guy is despised and distrusted by half the nobles of Jerusalem. So Baldwin decides to crown Sibylla's son, his nephew, as his co-king. But this isn't much better, because the new co-king, and apologies for this, but he's also called Baldwin, is only five years old. So let's recap. Marshall arrives in Jerusalem to find murderous factional disputes raging between rival nobles, Guy and Sibylla battling to control Baldwin's fragile government through a five-year-old kid, and their political enemies doing everything they can to wrench that control away from them. Meanwhile, Saladin is circling, waiting for his moment to reconquer Jerusalem for Islam. Marshall's biography is totally silent on where he sits in all this, but if you'll allow me to go into detective mode, I think we can make an educated guess. Because here's what happens. In 1185, while Marshall is still there, the leper king Baldwin IV dies, leaving the child king, Baldwin V, as solo ruler. This makes the factional fight for control even worse, and Guy and Sibylla lose. A court of the nobles decides to appoint their bitterest enemy, a noble called Raymond Count of Tripoli, as regent to the young king. They've been cut out of power. At this point, I think Marshall has seen enough. He decides that even the crazy world of the Plantagenets back in the West is going to be better than this nonsense. So he takes his leave of Sibylla and Guy, who are related, don't forget, to the Plantagenets. They see that as bailing out, and, as Marshall's biography says, Guy is knocked off. Less than a year after Marshall leaves, little Baldwin dies. The much-hated Guy finally does become king, but without Marshall's support, he royally messes it up. He leads a Christian army into battle with Saladin and, unsurprisingly, gets his butt kicked by the brilliant general. It's a defeat with huge consequences for the whole Christian world, as we'll hear in a later episode. So this is why I think the biography is vague. My guess is that Marshall always regrets not staying. Sure, he did his duty to Henry the Young King, but he let down a branch of the Plantagenet family. And he missed his chance at being a hero on the biggest stage of all, saving Christ's own city from the infidel. I think he rued that so much that he wouldn't talk about it afterwards, and never wanted anything written about it. It got in the way of his legend, and he never forgave himself. 
And what's more, when he gets back to the Plantagenet world of Western Europe, things aren't exactly rosy. In fact, in the aftermath of Henry the Young King's death, a whole new heap of problems are piling up around old Henry. And as always, it's thanks to his remaining sons. To sort it all out, the king is going to require the help of someone he thought he'd never need again. But that's for next time on This Is History. As always, if you're craving more Plantagenet drama, I've got you covered. Join me on This Is History Plus, where every Thursday I release an extra episode revealing the weird details, fun facts and fascinating subplots we don't have time for in the main story. And on top of that, as a subscriber, you'll get all our episodes ad-free. Just visit This Is History on Apple Podcasts and click Try Free at the top of the page to start your free trial today. Or visit thisishistorypod.com to get access wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, if you're enjoying the show, please do give us a rating or review. It's a great way to support us and help new people find the podcast.